This is the Sunday School lesson for August 15th for Graceway Baptist Church, and we are looking at the New City Catechism, as you know, and doing questions and answers that help us to grow spiritually or to reaffirm things that we already know, which is always a good thing. There's a lot in the Bible about memory in there. We are to remember the things that we were taught as a youth, Paul told Timothy, the things that he learned at his mother's knee. That's not a bad thing, is it? Even the Lord's Supper said, uh, this do in remembrance of me. And so we need to have things stirred up and that's what we're trying to do. As we uh, talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is actually the question, what is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I can't help but reflect upon my own experiences, and perhaps you can do the same. There are a lot of us, a lot of us in Graceway, who had an experience um, of walking down the aisle or raising our hand or praying a sinner's prayer, and then later on, as adults, we truly were born again and were baptized. A lot of those have happened at Graceway during my tenure and even before. That always makes me wonder because, please don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't believe in childhood salvation, because I do, and I know far too many people whose lives have been changed as a little child. But for some reason, mine and so many others were not. And when I've looked back on that and prayed about it, thought about it, I wondered, why didn't God save me when I was a little boy? I was not really trying to be a hypocrite. I was not trying to fool anybody. I was not just doing something that I thought would get me out of trouble. I really thought I was doing the right thing. And I would suppose that when I walked down the aisle, whoever counseled me, I really don't remember anything about it, but I probably did everything they told me to do because I wanted to do it right. That's the kind of kid I was. And yet I don't really remember uh, anything that I prayed or anything that I thought, except number one, I don't remember anything really about sin. Um, I, I'm going to make a guess. Again, I don't, I don't remember, but I'm gonna make a guess that maybe Somebody told me that in order to be saved and go to heaven, I needed to pray this prayer. Well, I was willing to pray the prayer. Maybe they told me that I needed to open the door of my heart and let Jesus in, and I didn't want Jesus to be outside in the cold. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I would be willing to do that. But I don't know if they really told me anything about sin. Now, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps I did. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit didn't deal with me about my sin. And that makes all the difference in the world. You can tell a lost, dead sinner about their sin and about the penalty of sin till you're blue in the face. But until the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, nothing really happens. And that's the difference between being 10 years old and walking an aisle and, oh, the second thing that I remember thinking, number one, I don't remember anything about being convicted of my sin. Number two, as I was going down the aisle, I remember thinking this will make them happy. 
And I knew that people in the church got happy. I knew mom and dad got happy. And so in my mind, it was a good thing to walk the aisle and do whatever you do down front and then be baptized. And again, there wasn't a bone in my body that said we can fool them, we'll be a hypocrite or anything like that at all. That just wasn't there. And so um, I did all of that and yet I wasn't born again. But when I was 22, that's when it really hit me, the burden of my sin, the weight of my sin, uh, as we say so often, the conviction of my sin really hit me uh, at that point. And that's when I prayed to receive Christ and trusted him as my Savior and Lord. Um, I didn't fully even then understand as much about the gospel as I do now. And you probably didn't either. We all grow in those things. And uh, Paul wrote the book of Romans, which explains salvation in such great detail. And he was writing that to believers because we really do need to grow in our understanding of the gospel. Well, I can remember that after I got saved, that uh, there were some things that I've told you about before that would confuse me. There was a man that came that I highly respected, came to our church, and he said, um, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Well, I certainly believed that, and I was a Bible believer, but he made this statement. If you're still struggling with the same sin after salvation that you were before, then you're a lost church member. And I remember thinking, oh no, here we go again. Why can I not get this settled? Why won't God hear my prayer? And why won't he save me? And it was really confusing. Well, what he said had absolutely nothing to do with that verse. What he said about that was his own surmising about that, but that really didn't come from the Holy Spirit. That didn't come from studying the Word of God. That's just something that he read, and that was his, um, shall we say, philosophizing about what it means to be a Christian. I guarantee you that guy still struggled with the same sins after salvation that he did before. Now keep in mind, I had grown up in church. I never did drugs or anything like that. Uh, you know, I was living a, a fairly moral life. There wasn't just a whole lot that outwardly would change after I uh, became a Christian. There's nothing much that anybody would see that would drastically change. Now, this guy that said that, this guy was, um, you know, really abusing alcohol. He was a violent person. He would get into fights and you know, carrying a gun around and, and hoping for a chance to use it. Well, of course, when he gets saved, he lays aside those things. And on the basis of his experience being kind of um, imposed upon that verse, that's called eisegesis, by the way, reading meaning into the text instead of pulling it out. Well, then he looked and he said, well, I carried a gun before I was saved illegally and uh, I didn't carry one afterwards. I used to drink before I was saved. Now I no longer use alcohol. I used to get into fights. Now I don't fight anymore. And therefore he could come to that conclusion, okay? My sins were every bit as condemning and uh, took every bit as much of the blood of Jesus in order to save me 
but they were not as evident. In fact, a lot of my sins would have been considered acceptable by most people, even in the church sometimes. And I even had people after I was saved try to talk me out of the fact that I'd been saved. A lady told me one time, well, I don't understand it because the Holy Spirit used you. And I just said, well, have you ever read the story of Balaam? God used Balaam's donkey as well. He can use anything or anyone that he wants to at any time. And I still believe that. When I was uh, ordained, someone asked me when I felt called to preach. You want to know the honest truth? I knew that God wanted me to preach when I was about 11 years old. I wasn't even saved yet. Someone questioned that. How could it be that you were called to preach before you were saved? I went to Jeremiah chapter 1 and, gave, and saw Jeremiah's testimony. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, God says, and I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. I said, my ordination today is not my real ordination. My real ordination is when God ordained me to preach his word back when I was just a, a, a baby in my mother's womb or whenever it happened. And uh, so I knew that and I had this distinct feeling that that's what I was going to do and uh, that's what came to pass ultimately as you well know. Now, when I look at my story and then I maybe look at your story, are they going to be the same? No, your circumstances, maybe your stage in life, completely different than where I was. I mean, again, most of you know this, but for those who don't, I was actually on staff at a church when I was lost and I got saved um, during that tenure. And I was leading music in a church. Imagine what people thought when I started the hymn of invitation then went down and talked to the pastor. A lot of people thought I was resigning and uh, boy, you could have knocked them over with a feather when I told them that I was confessing Christ as Lord and submitting to water baptism. Well, it kind of struck a chord, evidently, because about 20 or 25 other lost church members got saved within the week. And so uh, that's, I think, is a real, a, a real problem that we've got people that have prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or been baptized, but they've never repented of their sins and put their faith in the gospel. They don't even really know what the gospel is. In fact, Steve Elkins and I were visiting with some people one time who had visited our church. I asked them about their testimony and all they could tell me is there was a time when they went quote unquote down front. And it took a while for us to explain the gospel to them and for them to affirm that's what they believed and that's what they were trusting in and uh, I think there are a lot of people who are like that, some who are genuinely saved, but they don't know how to express it, and some who think they are saved, and they are trusting in something that is completely and totally inadequate to save them. That's what I did. And so this is why the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ is so extremely important. We're going to look in just a moment in Acts chapter 9 at Paul's testimony of salvation. And while it's nothing like mine outwardly, yet there are some similarities. And that's what I would say to you. Your testimony may be different than mine, or is it? There may be some real 
similarities in there. And we're all going to look and see in just a few moments about how the Apostle Paul was actually saved. Now, we ask the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And here's the answer. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him and also receiving and resting on him, this is a very important word, alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now, why did I emphasize that word alone? Because there are people, some people in groups, like if you talk to a Roman Catholic and a devout Roman Catholic and ask them what they believe about Jesus, it's going to be very similar to what you believe. If you ask them, did Jesus die on the cross, they're going to say yes. If you ask them why Jesus died on the cross, they very well might answer as a payment for sins. Now, here's the key. If you talk to them and they really know what they believe and have really embraced Roman Catholic doctrine, the word alone is going to really mess them up. Do you believe that Jesus Christ alone paid for sins? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Because their doctrine will teach them that salvation is indeed by grace and so you receive Christ as Savior and Lord, plus you go to Mass, plus you fulfill the seven sacraments of the church to the best of your ability. And the word alone is going to be hard for them. And that's why the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they came up with those solas, which mean alone. Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone, right? And solus Christus, Christ alone. And that alone is what makes Protestants that are born again distinct from Roman Catholics. This has been the battle for a long time. But I will say that a lot of that has invaded Protestantism now. And there are people who say, yes, I'm a believer in Christ plus my morality or plus church rituals those kind of things. And there are a lot of people that trust in the way that they feel. They trust in the way that they were able to change their life and reform their life. And uh, maybe they're not so much trusting fully in Christ. Are you fully trusting in his grace this hour is what the old hymn says. Well, let's take a look. The scripture that is given in the catechism I started to say catalog. Can you believe that? Catechism is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I have given my life to Christ and Christ has given his life to me. I gave my sin to Christ and he gave his righteousness to me. And now he's the one who uh, lives through me. Now, when we think about, as I mentioned, Acts chapter 9, about the salvation of the Apostle Paul, I know that you probably have never ridden a donkey. I know that you probably have never been to Damascus or on the road to Damascus. I know that you didn't um, serve as a Pharisee, those type of things. And I know that you never felt... 
uh, zealousness to go and persecute believers and throw them in jail or execute them or whatever. Uh, that part of the story, yeah, I, I am with you. Nothing like my testimony as a kid who grew up going to church and grew up in a Christian home. That was not Paul's testimony. But as we look at this, I think that you will see as you follow along that there are some basic principles that are very true in every believer, every believer. And the first thing we see as we look at uh, these verses, verses one and two, for example, then Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus, synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that was the earliest name of the church, the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now notice he's breathing out threats and murder against them. He was not afraid to kill them if necessary. He was so zealous for his religion, so zealous for Judaism, so zealous for the traditions uh, of his ancestors that he was willing to kill anyone who did not agree with that or that he thought was trying to change that. Now, what's the point that we want to make about Paul's salvation that is true of every one of us? This is point number one. Salvation is not deserved or earned. Well, I know for most of us, well, you know, big whoop, tell me something new. But when you look at this about uh, Saul of Tarsus, I want you to think about what his motives were, what he was doing, what he was attempting to do, where he was heading. And this is certainly not a charitable act. This is certainly not anything that we would call some kind of a good deed. This is something that is very treacherous. This is very ugly. It's very dark. And he is, according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit about him, he's breathing out threats and murder. Really? That's what you're going to call a good person? I wouldn't. And the Bible is very clear here that Paul was not acting in any kind of faith or righteousness or anything at all. In fact, this is evidence of some of the depths of depravity, isn't it? And it's just a reminder that whether it's you or whether it's me or even the great apostle Paul, salvation is not deserved. Salvation is not deserved. And sometimes I hear people that act like they did God a favor when they quote unquote found him. Well, God was never lost. You were the one that was lost. He found you. They act like they do God a favor when they made a choice to join up. And yet I would go back and say, why was it that you even wanted to join up with Christ? And that's because his grace and because the Holy Spirit drew you and the Holy Spirit gave you faith. It's not because of anything that you did. It's not because we're smarter than lost people. It's not because there's some kind of an innate goodness in us and the Holy Spirit just kind of fanned the flame and then everything happened. Uh, that's not the case. This this person, this sinner, and you as a sinner, and the Apostle Paul as a sinner before salvation, we were wet wood. We were not ignitable until the Holy Spirit came and set us on fire 
for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, from start to finish, a work of God for undeserving sinners. So, um, number two, well, let's read the scripture first. We'll go down to verse three. And it says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Never had that happen to me. And that didn't happen when I got saved. Verse four, then he fell to the ground. Well, I knelt, but I didn't fall to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I did not hear an audible voice. I did not hear uh, a voice coming down from heaven. I mean, how could any of this relate to me? Well, let's get point number two, and this is true for every believer, you, me, and the Apostle Paul. Number two, there is a divine confrontation. You cannot be saved until you are convicted by the Holy Spirit and you are convinced that Jesus is the only way and you don't do that. And the person who witnessed to you doesn't do that. A preacher doesn't do that. It has to be a divine confrontation with God. God is the one who changes us. God is the one who convicts us. God is the one who convinces us. So why was it that in my estimation, when I got saved at the age of 22, 1982, why is it that I wanted Jesus Christ to be my savior more than I wanted to breathe at that moment? I wanted to be assured of my salvation and a follower of Christ more than I wanted anything at that particular moment. Why was that? Because in my mind, I could look and I could say, when I'm told the gospel, and when I finally understand it, I made a choice. I wanted Jesus. I made a decision to follow him. I know some Calvinists have trouble with that terminology, and um, I do too, depending on how you define it. But when I look at it this way and say, it's not so much what I did that really matters, but why? Why did I do that? And I, again, I don't mean to be repetitive or just ramble, even though you know I'm 61, I'm allowed to do that. Here's the thing. When I think about my salvation and what God did for me, he gets all of the credit and he gets all of the glory. The reason that I would even remotely say that I made a choice to follow Christ is because he set free my dead, he made my dead spirit alive and set my captive will free and then drew me to himself. And I was cooperative, I didn't fight, I wasn't kicking and screaming, I said, yes, sir. Kind of like the apostle Paul did in this story. In the book of Hosea, when uh, Hosea, uh, the Lord, talks to Israel, he said, I drew you with cords of love. And when I felt the love of God and the power of God and the life of God and the faith that God gave me, there wasn't anything else to do. Yes, sir. Will you follow me? Yes, sir, I sure will. I mean, I wanted that. That was a desire that I had. Now, a lot of people will tell that story as if, there's something better about me or superior about me because I saw the truth and there's something wrong with you because you can't. Now, underscore this, none of us did and none of us could 
without a divine confrontation. And so Jesus confronted Saul of Tarsus or the apostle Paul, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, Saul of Tarsus became aware that something is wrong and there's some sin involved here that he wasn't aware of before. So God is not discovered, he's not found, he reveals himself personally confronting sin and self-righteousness. And boy, was Saul of Tarsus ever full of self-righteousness. Verse number five, and he, this is Saul, said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine how he must have felt when he heard those words? And Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So point number three is there is a definite change. Now, that one preacher that said the change is you won't have the same sin problems after salvation that you had before is just ridiculous. But the fact that the Bible teaches there's a change when we trust Christ is, well, that's absolutely true, isn't it? And notice here that Paul's change, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus. That didn't make Paul spit in his face. That didn't make Paul more determined to go after the followers of the way, the other followers of Jesus. In fact, what did it do? He's trembling and he's astonished. And here's the the thing. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? That is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and you cannot be saved without that. When my dad trusted Christ, he read a letter that was sent to him with something like the Romans wrote in it, and my dad had not been raised in church. He didn't know all of the churchy terms. He didn't know anything about the Bible, but those verses meant something to him, and so his prayer to the Lord was this, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but whatever it is, I'm doing it. You say, well, what kind of a prayer is that? It's a very sincere prayer. And it's also like my dad was handing God a blank piece of paper and he signed his name to the bottom of it and said, whatever you want to fill in as the terms of this contract is fine with me. Now, later, did he get to learn those things? Yes. Did he learn the gospel more fully later on? Yes, he certainly did. But at that point, That's all he knew, and that's all he understood. And it makes me think of Carl Kerrigan when he said salvation is the surrender of everything you understand about yourself to everything you understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how to put it much better than that, but that's what changes everything. Saul of Tarsus changed his direction. All of his plans were changed at this particular point. His whole agenda was changed. He's called and he's drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, and that brings us down to the next phrase. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So all of a sudden, the plans are changed. His goals and his purpose, everything is changed, and God is the one who is the authority. He's submitting to the person and the word of God. 
So point number four is there's a new direction. You know, a person who says, well, I got saved, I was at camp, I was in VBS, I was somewhere and I trusted the Lord, but they are, well, they still hate church and they still are disinterested in the word of God and they still are persisting in sin. They're not fighting against it. They don't hate it. They don't loathe it. They're still continuing on in the way that they were before they were saved. Then I would question that salvation too, wouldn't you? And there are a lot of people like that who are on the rolls of Baptist churches and who even attend Baptist churches. This is why this is important. You may be talking to one of these guys in your Sunday school class teachers because there is a new direction, number four. Then we get on down to verse seven. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What was going on here? This is point number five. You impressed? I came up with five points. It is distinctly personal. Now, the reason I wanted to include that and uh, the reason I think that this is important is notice the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't call their names either, did he? And they were ever bit as guilty as Saul of Tarsus. They were on the same mission. They were there helping him. They were assisting him to do this wicked work. But God put his hand on Saul. And God personally called Saul to salvation. And so sometimes whenever you have this thing to where a person leads people into a mass prayer, I look at that and I say, I wonder how many people are just repeating words and how many people are being dealt with by the Holy Spirit. You see, when you do that type of thing, it's not that I don't believe you can be saved by praying a sinner's prayer in a mass group. Of course you can. Of course you can. You know what I'm concerned about though and why I don't do that? It's because I'm afraid of giving people false assurance who have no idea what they're doing and God is not dealing with them. Salvation is something that is distinctly personal. Distinctly personal. God doesn't save a whole bunch of people at one time. He saves them one at a time. Even when there are 3,000 souls in Acts chapter 2 who are saved, I promise you each one of them were individually dealt with by God, individually drawn by God, individually given faith by God, and individually uh, they were born again. And their names were individually in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. And this is something that we need to see. This is why in some of the big crusades and rallies and things like that, and I've been to a bunch of them, and I have seen God move, and I've seen lives change through all of that. But sometimes it doesn't seem to happen because others are just on the bandwagon. They're just joining the crowd, and that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And so Saul is the only one that God dealt with as far as we know, I don't know if these other people got saved later or not. Maybe they did. 
But in this particular thing, it was just Saul. And understand that God is under no obligation to save anyone or everyone. In John chapter three, verse eight, it says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And so you can have uh, 15,000 people sitting and hearing the same message. One person responds and the other ones walk away unmoved. Why is that? It goes down to the work of God, doesn't it? Now, those other people may get saved later on because a seed may have been planted or a seed may have been watered. It's never in vain to do that, folks. Please don't ever think that, but it's individual. Um, the definition of salvation or faith in Christ might have been expressed in these words. Faith is the soul's entirely adhering and acquiescing in the revelation of Jesus Christ as our Savior. Or thus, here's another one. Faith is the soul's embracing that truth of God that reveals Jesus Christ as our Savior. Or thus, here's another one. Faith is the soul's entirely acquiescing and depending upon the truth of God revealing Christ as our Savior. Jonathan Edwards wrote that. He lived from 1703 to 1758 and was heavily involved in the Great Awakening. And in the Great Awakening, what happened? Well, the fires of revival burned and scores of people were born again and churches were revived. But one of the great things that happened is what I believe needs to happen now. People that went to church every Sunday were then genuinely born again in the Great Awakening. People who had a lot of religiosity, I guess we might say, now were actually saved and born again because of the preaching of the gospel. And may God grant that we might grasp what true faith is, number one, so that if we're not born again, we could be, and number two, so we don't just take it for granted that everybody who goes to church or everybody who mentions God or everybody who lives a moral, pharisaical life is automatically born again. Billy Graham used to say that the biggest mission field in America is in the church pew, and he believed that about 75% of professing Christians were actually lost. Well, I don't know about the number, but I know I was one of those. And I know that there are scores of people like me. And so we've got to proclaim the gospel and pray for people and then understand it ourselves. And that's what I hope has happened today. Thank you for your time. And teachers, as you listen to this audio in your preparation, Please encourage your Sunday school class members that whenever they miss Sunday school, watch the video. Even though we're having evening services and currently watching a video by Paul Tripp, this Sunday school lesson, this video is still going to be broadcast live stream. So it'll still be available to them on Sunday evening at 5.30 or later on it'll be archived and they can watch it and they can keep up with what all we're doing. I appreciate you so much and thank you so much for your time and may the Lord himself bless you and bless you in ways that are far beyond your imagination. Thank you once again.